Well, we are barreling through Colossians. We are in chapter 3. We're almost done. And I was going to preach through uh, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And I thought, you know what? We'll talk about wives and husbands and children and fathers and, and slaves and, and masters. And, and I got through wives and husbands and realized, man, that's a lot to cover. Uh, and so rather than making the decision here, we're just going to talk about the first couple verses. Um, but just by way of review, if, if, we've, if you've been taking notes or, or paying attention, Paul has been building an argument. In, in chapter 1, he, he begins really talking about this gospel that they had received from Epaphras, this minister who's been ministering, and, he's, and, and Paul said, you guys have received the good news. It's bearing fruit. I'm so excited about the faith that you've expressed, the love that you have for all the saints for one another, and the hope that you have in, in the, the promise of, of eternity with God. And so in chapter 1, he, he begins to unpack that and unpack the, the supremacy, the, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is better than anything. You see, the Colossians had begun to think that Jesus was good, but maybe not good enough, that his sacrifice was, was helpful, but maybe not sufficient. That, that the gospel was, was salvific with some things. And so in chapter 1, he begins to talk about this idea of the preeminence of God, specifically of Jesus Christ. And, and then in chapter 2, he, he begins to unpack his own ministry and talk about the fact that, that their, their salvation comes through the gospel, not through other alternatives. And, and it, it can be so easy for us to receive this good news about Jesus Christ, that he, he died on the cross he lived a perfect life uh, that we should have lived, died on the cross for our sins in our place, defeating Satan's sin and death and, and offering eternal life to anyone who would believe. And we, we receive that, welcome it, but then as we begin to live life, we begin to live life not out of the gospel and what God has done, but out of our own sense of a desire for performance and self-justification. Uh, and he says, you know, you can't add to the gospel. You, you can rely on the gospel and you can bring the gospel to bear in different parts of your life, in your marriage, in, in your finances, in how you relate to other people, but you can't add to this gospel. And so he says, don't, don't be fooled by these people who are trying to add things to what you've already received, right? Chapter one is the preeminence of Christ. Christ is greater than, chapter two is the preeminence of Christ over innovation. The gospel is greater than. And then chapter three has been really about life in Christ. If, if you and I believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And that's not just a, that's not just a nice Christianese way of saying he's, he's a cool guy. No, Lord is master. And in fact, as we talk in a couple weeks about uh, slave, slaves and masters, that word there is the same word that is applied to Christ. He is our master. He's the one who calls the shots. He is the one who determines what we do and don't do. If Jesus is master, then what does the master want us to do? How does he want us to live? We talked about in chapter 3 verses 1 and one through 4 that, that we set our minds on things above. What, is, what does God want us to think about? What does God want us to believe? What does God want us to, to focus ourselves on? What does God want us to raise our affections to? And then he, we talked about in the following verses that we are to put off some things and put on some things, that we are to put to death certain behaviors and, and attitudes, sexual immorality, anger, lying, these types of things that tear down and break down uh, our interpersonal relationships when the gospel, the good news about Jesus, should bring us together in, in whole relationships. He talked about putting things off, and then he talked about putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved the, the character and the nature of Jesus Christ himself. This week, we're going to consider what it looks like for God's chosen, holy, and beloved people to live under the authority of Christ in relationship with other people. I'm going to repeat that. We're going to consider what it looks like for, for you. If you're, if you're in Christ, then you're God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. With that in mind, what does it look like for you to live under the authority of Christ but not in a vacuum, in relationship with other people. This is what we would say where the rubber meets the road. So if you're going to stand with me together, we're going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Colossians 
chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you that your word is good. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see the the beauty of your lordship reflected in this mutual appreciation between a husband and a wife, this mutual and and complementary lifestyle of, of, of following you in relationship with one another. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak clearly in your word, through your word, and that you'd bring not only clarity and wisdom, but, but conviction and comfort and, and healing. Holy Spirit, I invite you to be here as we, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So, Paul begins to talk in in what we would call a household code of conduct. Now, in in Paul's time, he had peers and philosophical peers who would, these were pagans, but they would think about, okay, what is the best way to live? And they would write about what the best way to live would be. But usually, if if you were to go and look at some of these pagan alternatives, they were focused on those individuals who had positions of power or status in the culture. So primarily it was written to men. And, and women and children and slaves were not addressed because women and children and slaves were often treated largely like property, like possessions. Now in the reality of the, the household, a husband and a wife, the wife had uh, uh, influence, but from a position of, of the, the society that, that Paul is speaking to, that they didn't necessarily acknowledge that officially. So Paul takes this, this form of writing, this idea of a code of contact, a, a household code, code of contact, and he, he appropriates it, but he adopts it and, and gives it a Christian push. And so where you might see a, a pagan code of contact addressing men alone and, and how they are to live honorably and, and treat their, their women, children, slaves, here we see Paul immediately addressing the, the person in the lower position of, of authority, pr- pr- promoting them and showing that, that there's a place of honor and dignity. And he does so for, for the wife, and he does so for the child, and he does so for the slave or the bondservant. But the reality is this, this is a, this is a challenging text for, for some of us. This is a challenging text. I recognize that. And, and I think part of the reason that it's a challenging text is because we don't view marriage in the way that God views his marriage. We live in a world where people are bad. You can look at your neighbor and say, I'm sorry, you're bad. And then neighbor, you can say, well, I'm sorry, you're bad. We talked about this a number of weeks back, but God is good, right? All the time and all the time. And people are not. People are not. In, in relationship to God, people are not good. And so something that God made, this very good thing that God made marriage, has been corrupted, has been usurped, has been used for, for bad purposes. So I recognize at the forefront that if you're in a marriage and you're a woman, you have been wronged. Can we just admit that? You've been wronged by your husband. Husbands, just be quiet. Or nod and say you're sorry. Those are your options. And, and husbands, I recognize that if you're married, you've been wronged. Just be quiet, though. But when God created marriage, he created an amazing thing. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything else, and, and he culminates his creation on the sixth day by creating, it says he created man or humanity in his own image in chapter 1, verse 27. 
In the image of God, he created him. And then it says this interesting thing. Male and female, he created them. God's, God's being, his image, is so full that it couldn't be encapsulated in a man alone. It couldn't be encapsulated in a woman alone. The idea of the Trinity, and, and the Trinity is hinted at here, right? God lives in perfect community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is not some sort of idea that, that God said, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to split myself up and then we'll understand what community is. No, he has always existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three different distinct persons, one distinct or one individual God living in perfect community, perfect love for the Father pouring out the love on the Son, the love pouring out... Uh, the, the, the son pouring out love on the father and the Holy Spirit expressing love between the two. He's always existed in, in this idea of community. So when God creates something in his own image, he creates it in community. The first community being marriage. And in chapter two, we see a, a kind of a, a slow down, not so panoramic, but, but focused view of creation. And, and we see that Adam is made, God makes Adam, but, but everything else is great, except that Adam is not great. It says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Now out of the I'm sorry, then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. And, and that don't think, ladies, oh, I'm a helper. That's, no, the Holy Spirit's referred to as a helper. This is a good thing. Again, we're reflecting the nature of God in this marriage relationship. So that's the picture that we have of a husband leading and, and obeying God and following the command to, to, to uh, be fruitful and multiply, to, to cultivate this garden. God gives Adam his wife Eve, and, and God basically says, care for this woman the way that you'd care for this garden. Cultivate it. Build her up. Strengthen her. Guide her. Lead her. Sacrifice for her. And then we see that the fall happens. Adam abdicates his role of a leadership, allowing Eve to, to fall into sin, falling into sin by doing so, right? Adam is there when Eve sins. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He sits there like a, like a dummy, to put it politely. He doesn't lead. He doesn't do good. And so Eve falls into sin. Adam falls into sin, and things get messed up. And we see throughout the rest of Scripture that God is on a on a mission to restore what, and even to do better than what was done in Eden, part of which is this idea of marriage. But we don't just see that. If we go to Ephesians chapter, chapter 5, and we're going to get back to the text in just a moment, but just trying to thread this needle for us all. Uh, Paul speaks to the Ephesians, and he addresses the idea of marriage there as well. Uh, and he says in chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is the Savior. Husbands, that does not mean you're the Savior. That means you're responsible. So just take note. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The crazy thing about marriage, and, and this is not something that God decided, you know what, this marriage thing, it's, it's a good illustration. I'm going to use this to describe the, the Christ and his relationship to the church. It's not as though he saw marriage and thought, you know what, that's helpful. No, he created marriage for the purpose of 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 illustrating what he wanted to do with his people. Husbands, you are intended to present yourselves as, as Christ to your wife and not in some sort of weird, like, dictatorial, authoritarian, I'm in charge way, but the sort of way where Jesus is on the cross bleeding out and saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Husbands, a, a wife who has a, who has a husband who is willing to die to sacrifice himself, to sacrifice his desires, his will, his plans, his future, his career for the sake of his spouse, that's, that's a husband that she is probably going to follow. Probably going to be okay with that. And, and wives, 
the call for you is to trust God as you trust this knucklehead. You may not trust this knucklehead, but if, if you trust God, you can trust God to be faithful to work on this knucklehead. And guys, you're not knuckleheads. You're great. But sometimes you're knuckleheads. So, marriage was created good to exemplify the, the picture of, of, of God, the image of God, male and female together, community of God. And, and marriage was created to give us a picture of Christ and the church and the love and devotion that he has for his people and the, and the love and devotion that, that his people have for him. So in light of that, we come back and we hear Paul's words, God's words. Wives, submit to your husband as, as is fitting to the Lord. The question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that just mean be nice, be kind? It, the word in this instance means to put oneself under the authority or direction of another. And if you look at the word in other places... It's very clearly putting yourself under the authority of another. Now, it's different than, than the other words that Paul is going to use. He's going to tell children to obey. He's going to tell slaves to obey. And we'll talk about slavery in, in, in a moment. This doesn't condone slavery. I'll just put that out there. It doesn't condone slavery. But he tells his wives to submit. So there's this, there's this tension that Paul recognizes that there are going to be moments in your marriage where your submission may not look like obedience because your husband's telling you or leading you into things that you don't need to obey. In, in Ephesians uh, 5.24, I just was there, Paul makes the parallel that the church puts itself under the authority or direction of Christ, so a wife should put herself under the authority and direction of her husband. The idea here is of, of deference. This is not, this is, again, this is not some sort of weird thing where husbands get to call the shots and, you know, go get me a, a Coke from the fridge and, and do what I want, you know. We've all, we all know the caricatures, so we're not going to go through those. As I said, part of the reason this is a challenge for us is because our idea of marriage is more informed by the world than it is by Scripture. And that goes for husbands and wives. And I love you guys. You married a sinner. You married a sinner, so they've got messed up views of marriage, and so you guys have got to figure it out together. Wives in marriage, it's your responsibility to reflect the aspect of the church following Christ. That means that, that you're willing to allow your husband to lead. Give him room and opportunity to be Christ to you, to be self-sacrificing. And, and wives, we're going to get to the husbands in just a quick moment. Um, Christ pursues, he provides, he protects, he promotes the maturity of his bride. Christ sacrifices and serves the church, and the church follows the loving leadership of Christ. This is what marriage is intended to look like. Now, I want to give this caveat. This is not, there are some things that Paul does not mean by submit. Paul does not mean that wives are to submit to abuse, right? If you're going to tweet anything, please include that. Paul does not mean that wives are to submit to abuse, whether emotional, physical, sexual, or otherwise. Abuse is evil. It's abhorrent in God's eyes. It's wicked. God hates when those who, in positions of authority or power, use their power to hurt others. Right? The Bible, that, that's basically much of the Old Testament, is, is God saying, I don't like how those in authority have used that authority for wickedness. I'm going to smite them. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but not very. There's no room in a Christian marriage for submission to, to abuse, to hurt, to bullying. That's not what God's calling for. Paul does not mean that, wives, that by wives submitting to... Um, to their husbands, that they, they submit to ungodly decisions, right? And, and wives, your husband is imperfect. And you're like, I know. <laughs> I've been here. No, but, but your, wife is, your husband is imperfect, so he's going to make some dumb decisions. And, and, it, and it's your responsibility to recognize the difference between a dumb decision and a sinful decision. There may be moments where you kind of, you're like, well, that's a dumb decision, but 
God, teach them. And then there are moments where that's an ungodly decision. No, sweetheart, we're not going to let our kids go to that place and do that thing. No, we can't, we're not going to make that really bad financial decision. No, you can't be unfaithful. There are things where, where you, in your, in your submission to God, have to say no to your husband. This, this, may, this may lead to conflict. In this, in this scenario, we, we get to recognize that, that as husbands and wives, especially if, if you're a believing husband and wife, that, that you are a, and hear this well, not weirdly, you're, you're a brother and sister in Christ. In the same way that a sister in Christ is not going to encourage a brother in Christ to, to run headlong into sin, a wife cannot, cannot stand and, and say, I'm going to follow you into sin. And in fact, it is, it is her duty as the helper, to, as, as, as the one who's supporting and following, to say, no. No, this is what God calls us to. The wife is called not to submit to leadership dis- decisions that are ungodly. So what do you do when you find this difficult? And I said, when, because when. Um, you may be thinking to yourself, I, you don't know my husband. You don't know my husband like I know my husband. You don't know what my husband has done to me. Um, I, wrote, I wrote in my notes, perhaps you've been wronged by your husband, but we've all admitted that you've been wronged by your husband. So, so what should you do? And I've got uh, six things, and I'm sure there are more that you could add. What should you do? Well, we, we just got done reading chapter 3, and it talks about how we're to relate to one another. In chapter 3, verse uh, 13, it says this, um, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Paul did not just lose his memory and, and start talking about husbands and wives and say, you know what, what I said before doesn't matter. No, he, he, he calls us to forgive. Not because your husband deserves it, but because Christ has forgiven you. And, and family, I, I'm telling, I'm leading off with forgiveness because it clears the way for you to walk in, in righteousness. Because after, after that point, once you've forgiven and said, I'm not holding this against you, then everything else that comes out of you is, is from a place of, of love and, and faithfulness to God. But if you muddy the waters with unforgiveness, you don't allow God to vindicate. You don't allow God to avenge. You don't allow God to be the, the source of conviction. So I would say forgive. Secondly, I would say pray. In Philippians, it talks about, you know, present your your anxious thoughts, your requests, your concerns to him. Pray. Remember that God brought Jesus from the dead. This is someone, something that someone uh, pretty smart and awesome said to me. He can take a spiritually dead person and make them alive. He can take a lazy man and make him a provider. He can take a selfish man and make him selfless. He can take a proud man and make him humble. Young, young wives, talk to the older wives. You can't do it. You can't. You can try. And, and I think many of us get married with this idea that I'm going to fix it, it being him and her, right? I'm going to fix her. I'm going to fix him. At a point, you have to come to the realization, I can't do this. But you know what? God can. So you pray. We forgive. We pray. Third, we trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In your marriage, acknowledge him. In your choices, acknowledge him. In your frustration with how he leads, acknowledge him. And who's going to make the past straight? Not you, God. It doesn't say trust in your own abilities, trust in your own uh, sense of what's right, trust well, in your sense of what's right as it relates to your own heart, no, as it relates to Christ, yes. Trust in God, not your own desire to control the situation. Trust in God. Fourth, we love. He says in In chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you're you're married, I pray that apart from abuse, apart from um, abandonment, apart from adultery, that you you would nail your feet to the ground. Say, I'm here because God has put me here. 
And I say that to men as well, husbands as well, that I'm here. Apart from the provisions that, that God has given, that you would say, I'm here. I'm not going to get out of this because it's hard. I'm not going to get out of this because it's inconvenient. I'm not going to get out of this because, oh, he's, he's, he's not quite as handsome as I thought he was, and he smells bad, and he makes bad decisions. Love. Give thanks to God. That's number five. And then get with an older woman who can help you. Right? There's some very specific situations that I'm sure you're thinking about that I'm not going to address from the pulpit for your sake and mine. But there are people who can address those things. And, and I, talk to an older woman. This is, that's how the church is intended to be. Look for, just, just flag them down, right? There are some women, I'm not going to point them out, but some of them are vocal in my services, and I'm quite thankful for that. Find them, talk to them. Older women, please make yourself available. Help us to walk this out. And remember in all this, wives, that, that you're, you're doing this in an effort to live under the, uh, the lordship of Christ, right? The point is not to be a weird, I don't know, something weird. We all have ideas of weird, not that. The point is to say, God, I am under your authority, and, and I'm under your word, and, and I'm going to do my best to live faithfully to your word because I trust you, Jesus. There are going to be moments where, and there have been moments, I'm sure, where you have not trusted your husband. He has not proven himself to be trustworthy. And in those moments, I would, I would say, go to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Paul goes on, and he talks to husbands. And he gives two commands. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And uh, at first glance, it, it may seem like the husbands get the lighter responsibilities. And, and in some ways, we do. Husbands, as you reflect on your wife, remember that you have an opportunity to make her job easier or harder. If you lead well, you make it easier for her to follow you. We've all, we've all had... And, and it, there, there are differences, and I, please, there are differences. But we've all had a, uh, an employer who was a terrible employer. You didn't know what they wanted. You, they, they decided they wanted different things at different times. They were inconsistent. They were unkind. They were impatient. They were frustrating. And it was hard. And I, I think some of us, many of us have had people that we've worked for who have been good and they've explained things, and they lived well, and they've been encouraging, and they've asked, how, are you, how can I help you? And, and it has been a good thing. Husbands, you can either make things hard, or you can make things good. Your wife is not your employer, or employee. Please, don't, don't hear that. All right. Um, if you're a poor, lazy, or apathetic spiritual leader in your household, you make her job difficult. If you're, if you're a poor, lazy, or apathetic spiritual leader in your household, you make her job difficult. If you've coasted as a spiritual leader, you've done so at the cost of your wife. You don't pay the bill for your negligence. She does. If you've coasted as a spiritual leader, you have done so not at your own cost, but at the cost, she's footing the bill. She has to make up for your poor leadership. If you have children, she has to make up for your poor leadership because she's responsible to God as a, as a mother and she cannot allow her children just to, to live however. So if you don't set a tone in your own household, she's going to have to pick up her weight and your weight. And husbands, I say that as someone who has done this. So please don't hear this as me uh, being unnecessarily harsh. I want to call you guys up the same way I need to call myself up to be a better husband. On the other side of things, if you're a kind, intentional husband who's submitted to Christ yourself, you'll, have, you'll be much easier to follow. Doesn't mean that she will. And that's not your concern. Your concern is your part. But you have the opportunity to be a blessing to your wife. Single men and women, 
as a side note, you have an opportunity to build your life in such a way that you can be a blessing to your future spouse. Young men who are not married, you have an opportunity to set a tone in your own life of intentional self-leadership and commitment to Christ that will allow you to be a better husband. And what you do now is what you will do as a, as a husband. Don't kid yourself, guys. If you're, if you're in the middle of a junk and mess and foolishness now, you'll be in the middle of junk and mess and foolishness later. Marriage doesn't fix it. It just complicates it. So, he says, he says, husbands, love your wives. What does that look like? Well, again, if we, if we go to Ephesians, he says this. Love your wives, not, not just by being kind of nice and, and, and taking them out to eat sometimes and, you know, oh, I'll cook every now and again and I'll, I'll, I'll clean the dishes and I, I guess I'll clean that bathroom. No, he says, husbands, love your wives. What's the bar? What's the bar, Paul? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If I had a mic, I'd just drop it right now, right? I'm a good husband. Are you Christ? No. I, 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 do, I do enough. Have you died? No. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself up for the church. Is your loving leadership sacrificial? Is your disposition towards your spouse, towards your wife, one of, I'm going to sacrifice? Or is your disposition towards your spouse, I need you to go ahead and do some things for me? Now, in marriage, there's give and take, and, and she will help you and do things for you. But, but what, is your, what is your primary mode of operation? Is it, is it sacrifice? Is it, is it deferring to her needs and desires, trying to, trying to cultivate her life? Or is it trying to build your own life, your own career, your own uh, comforts, and, and saying, come and help me with this? Christ gave himself up for the church. He, he seeks to sanctify the church. Is your loving spiritual leadership focused on the spiritual well-being of your wife? You know, this is something that I, I, I think that I, I got fooled into as a, as a single college-aged guy, I was thinking, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going I'm to love Jesus, I'm going to, you know, do things for Jesus, and it was about me and Jesus, and me and Jesus, and me and Jesus. The problem with that is that it's about me and Jesus, and me and Jesus, and me and Jesus, and you get married, and it's still about me and Jesus, and me, and, come help me be about me and Jesus. Jesus steps aside, and he loves the church. He He's not trying to garden his own life. He's trying to cultivate the church. Husbands, you've been given an opportunity to cultivate your wife. And by that I mean to, to encourage her from the word. Not just to, to seek how you can be the best you can be, but ask the question on a consistent basis, how can I be an encouragement to my wife? What am I reading in scripture that could be something that would give her life? Not just what can I do to make myself feel better, but, but how can I, what can I find in Scripture that will help me be an encouragement, a source of blessing, a source of confidence, a source of stability to my wife? He seeks to sanctify her. Christ seeks to purify the, the church by washing her with Scripture. Is your loving leadership informed by, driven by, and filled with Scripture? I said this, I think it was last week, that you know, we talk about reading the Bible every day, but really, that's not enough. It's not enough in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm going through this, guys. I, I'm <laughs> I've, I've been writing these, these little notes for my wife, and, and this is not like, oh, go Eddie. But this is, this is me trying to like, well, I'm going to preach on this. I better do it. Um, um, and I've been, I've been reading through the Psalms, and like the first few weeks, it was like, okay, cool, I got this, and you know, how precious is steadfast love of God, and, and that sounds good, it'll ring, and then, but after a little while, I'm like, I'm running out of things to say, you know, what do I say? Uh, trust in the Lord, I already wrote that, okay, um, for God so love, no, we've been there, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going into some of the minor prophets and just hoping for the best, uh, but, but, and I joke, but, but. You need the word not just for yourself, husbands. You need the word for your household. You need the word for your household. This is why I have this shaky Bible. I shake it at you to remind you that you need the Bible. Right? We all have, two, we got, if you're new, I, this is my, sh I shake this at people. It's in love. 
Um, you have your, your devices and that's great, but, but you need to get the word in you. Because your wife needs you to be filled with the word. Your children need you to be filled with the word. You, you don't need to watch that next episode. You don't need to watch that next game. You need to be in the word. Christ seeks to purify the church by washing her with scripture. Christ seeks to beautify the church. Is the goal of your loving leadership in your home, is, is the goal of your leadership in your home for the benefit of your wife or for yourself? Right? This is the point at which it gets really weird and it's the reason I think one of the primary reasons wives don't want to submit to their husbands because you want to lead for your own sake. And it is anti-Christian. It is anti-Christ. Jesus, at the moment where he is, it's his, the Last Supper, or it's before the Last Supper, he, the word says that he knew where he was going. He was going to be back with the Father. He knew who he was, right? He knew the authority that he had. And, and in knowing the authority, the authority that he had, do you know what he did? He told the 12 disciples, you know what? I want to have a big party. I want you to go get me these things. I want you to go, go get on the grill and grill me that, that steak. No. He goes and he, he takes off his outer garments and he puts, puts on a towel and he washes their nasty feet. At the point at which he recognizes the greatest level of his authority... He, he debases himself to the lowest form of service. What are you pursuing in your own leadership? Are you pursuing me and mine in your conversations, in your arguments? Are you trying to say, but I'm right, but I was not wrong, but I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's your responsibility. He seeks to, Christ seeks to beautify the church. Now, I kind of beat up on you guys, but can I tell you that you were made to love and to nurture and cultivate your wife. You were made for this. Some of you, you feel like you got two left feet, you got, you know, th all thumbs, and you have no idea what you're doing. And you're like, this is not for me. I, I stink at this. I'm going to go focus on the thing I'm good at. I'm going to go to work at work, or I'm going to go do that thing I'm not supposed to do on the internet, or I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to watch ESPN all day. I'm going to do the things that make me feel good. And let me tell you, you were made to be a husband. You were made to be a good husband. If you're single and you're not sure, you probably were made to be a good husband. And, and by that I mean God has a purpose for you. And if he has a purpose for you, he has grace for you. He has resources for you. You can do this. You need to do this, men. It's a lie that you can't. The enemy wants lazy, bored, apathetic, unspiritual, unchristian, unscriptural men. That's what he wants. Fill the church with those guys. Let them just sit there and have their eyes glaze over. No, God calls you to something greater. That greatness is not, not being the the best CEO that you can be. That greatness is being the, the most sacrificial husband and father that you can be. To cultivate this household and to present this household to God and say, this, I've done what I can with this responsibility. I've shown myself to be like Christ and to love and nurture and care for these people. I've been a presence of Christ in their life. You were made for more, working more than 50 hours a week and then watching ESPN or Netflix or, you know, pick your poison, whatever it is. You were made for having more than a roommate-like relationship with, your, with the woman in your house, with the wife in your house. If you have a roommate-like relationship with someone who's not your wife, move out and then get married. Or move out and don't get married, but just don't live together. You were made to pursue this woman, to woo this woman, to lay down your life for this woman. Don't hear that as commands. Hear that as what you were created for. Right? If, if you're a car, you're meant to run. If you're an airplane, you're meant to fly. If you're a hammer, you're meant to hammer things. <laughs> if, if you're a husband, you are meant to cultivate this life of this precious woman that God has entrusted to you. He goes on and he commands us not to be harsh. 
the idea here is of, of domineering leadership that makes a person bitter. I don't think it's unclear. When you, when you talk to your wife, do you do, you do so with a gentle uh, tone or do you do so with an edge? You know, can you engage with her with just kind of a, a peacefulness or is there a low-level boil? You know, is everyone in the household kind of like, dad's angry? Or, or, or can they come to you with their issues and problems? Can you, can you hear criticism and not freak out? Can you? And, and if you can't, there's grace. Or let me rephrase that. You can. If you feel like you can't, there's grace for you to get to the place where you can feel like you can. When you're in conflict, do you control your responses or do you give vent to your anger? Would your wife say that you've put to death anger, wrath, malice, or are these tools that you use? Husbands, I say this as someone who's used these tools. I've done that. And God calls us to more. He calls us to more. So, what do I do if I failed? You're in this room, you've heard the call. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good, but I've already failed. I've failed big. I've failed often. What do you do? Well, first of all, recognize that there's hope. There's hope. Is, is Jesus still alive? Yes he, yes, he is. Is he still on the throne? Yes. There's hope. There may not be hope uh, in the sense that you are going to do things that then make your wife do things. That's not the point. But there is hope for you to do what God has called you to do. If Christ is on the throne, there is hope. And good news, Christ is on the throne. So, n- number one, what you can do if you failed here is repent to God. God, I have been a bad husband. Don't make excuses. Don't make explanations. Don't try to Give caveats, God, I've been a bad husband. I've been a wicked husband. I have misrepresented your character and nature, Jesus, to my wife. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And then recognize that God forgives. And then, the more fun conversation, repent to your wife for not loving her well. Sweetheart, again, no explanations, no caveats, No, but you did this. So I had to. Just, Sweetheart, I've been a bad husband. I recognize that I've been harsh, that I've not been loving, that I've not held up the standard of of Scripture, that I've not led with conviction, that I've not searched out Scripture in the way that I ought to. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And she might not. She might not right away. And that is your first opportunity to love her. Repent to God, repent to your wife. Number three, forgive if you need to. Some of us, I've heard, we don't forgive and we kind of hold up unforgiven offenses like a squirrel does acorns. And when we get a little angry, we pull out those acorns and start eating them, and it makes us feel better. Is that just me? Everyone else is like, I don't, I don't, I don't need acorns. <laughs> I'm a vegan. I, know. I guess vegans could eat acorns. Anyway, we're going to move on. But should they? The point is, not that. The point is that, that you need to forgive. You don't need to wait for your spouse, for your wife. I mean, wives don't need to do this either, but you don't need to wait for your wife to apologize. You just need to forgive because that's what God has told you to do. And we talked about it a few weeks ago, but this does not mean you need to feel away. This means that you need to say to God, I'm going to give this offense to you, God, and I'm not going to pick it back up. 
and I'm not going to treat my wife as though there's an offense between the two of us. Right? This is the offense. I'm putting it down. There's nothing between the two of us that hinders this interaction on my end. You need to forgive her. And if you're like, I don't know where to start. She's been so mean. Do you know one, th- like one thing came to mind immediately when I said it? That's the thing. Start with that. If other things come, forgive those things. Forgive until you're like, I don't think there's anything else to forgive. And then praise God. Then praise God. So repent, repent, forgive. Then courageously pursue God in your own life through daily scripture reading, praying, participating in church, and being in a small group. Right? If you're serious about this, husbands, if you want to represent Christ, you need to know who Christ is. And then ask your wife how you can be an encouragement to her. And, and do this in a, in a spirit of gentleness. Sweetheart, I recognize I've done badly, poorly. How can I be an encouragement to her? And if she responds like, I don't even know. You've been the blah, blah, blah. And then just gets in, just kind of slowly back away. Give her a moment. Love her. And then pray and read scripture and see if you can come up with some other ideas. Talk to some other men, some older men who can help you. But give her opportunity to express to you what it means to be encouraged. If she doesn't want to do it, that's, that's okay. But give her opportunity. And then number one, two, three, four, five, six, do it. Do the things I just said. Don't just write them down or jot them down or, or say that you're going to jot them down or I'll, I'll listen to the podcast later. No, do these things, right? You're going to have lunch. Ask your wife, where would you like to eat, sweetheart? And then go there. Have a nice conversation. Send the kids out to play and, and just, I've been a bad husband. I'm so sorry. How can I be a better husband? And then after that, repeat. Because you're a sinner. And so am I. Um, what, do I what if I've tried to lead but she won't follow? I was at this meeting, I won't say where, but I was at a meeting one time, it was a Bible study, and the conversation devolved into, how do I get my wife to submit? And that's when I was like, oh no, <sighs> this is not good. <laughs> and, and you should feel that way too, f- f- husbands, because if that's, if that's the angle, y- you've missed the point. He's, he says, wives do this. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives do this. That's not, th- that's not the move. That's not the move. But, but maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried. You've read your Bible. You said, hey, sweetheart, can we talk about this? Can we pray? You know, I think we should do this. And your wife said, nope, nope, nope. Maybe, maybe that's been you. Um, the point of this command is not so that your wife will do, do what you want. Right? In the end, Jesus loves the church. And what, is, what, what do the people do? Maybe not all the church, but Peter, who's part of the church, he betrays them. Everyone else runs away. And then he, he gets murdered. So, I mean, if Jesus gets murdered, if you get fussed out or you don't get listened to, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm sorry. It's just not. So the point is not, not for you to get what you want. The point is for you to be faithful to your, to your spouse, that you honor God with the responsibility that he's given to you. And then I, I want you to honestly assess. You know, I've tried, I've tried. I want you to honestly assess, uh, assess whether you have obeyed Paul. Have you actually loved your wife? I've tried. Or have you been like, this is where we need to go, sweetheart. Let's do this thing. And treated her like not your, your, your loving wife. A wise person once told me that your wife is not uh, your disciple. And, and I think what he meant by that is there's a way you can interact with, with younger men that you do not interact with your wife. That is, that's not the tone you take. You, you love her differently. Have you loved your wife? Not have you told her what scripture says and how she needs to act, but have you loved her? Have you been harsh with her? And then, and then you pray and you say, God, this is, I'm trying. God, help me. How can I, help me. How can I be faithful in this circumstance? Then you trust God. You trust in the Lord, not in your own ability to manipulate her into doing the things that you think that she needs to do. And then you obey God. You love your wife. Don't try to use scripture to get your way. Please don't do that. Some of the, that, of sins, that's a pretty bad one. Don't use scripture. Don't use God's words to try and get your way. God's words are intended to get God's way. So, 
this is all working out of what we just went through, right? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and following, how we're supposed to seek the things above, how we're supposed to put to death certain things, how we're to put on Christ, how we're to put on love. This is what this looks like, right? This is what makes Christianity real, family. It's easy to say, I love Jesus. It's hard to say, I love my spouse and treat that person with the kind of love that Christ treats me with. But, but that's what makes this amazing, because the world sees it and they're like, that, that's crazy. And you're like, it is crazy. I keep forgiving this person and they keep hurting me, but Christ calls me to forgive them and I'm, I'm doing it and, and, and we're, we're loving one another and it's hard. It's a testimony to God and his redemptive grace. The marriage is an outworking of what Paul has already said, to put on love. Wives, you put on love by deferring to your husbands as they seek to emulate Christ. And husbands, you put on love by representing Christ well, dying to yourself, sacrificially loving your wives, and making it easy for them to follow you. Wives and husbands, remember, remember, you married a sinner. The Holy Spirit is at work. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Let's pray. Father God, how badly do we need your grace? I know that there are people in this room who have been deeply wounded by, by their husband or wife. And God, for those people, I pray that you would, you would bring the kind of comfort and care that gives them the courage to obey. For the wife who's been hurt, Lord, comfort and care to forgive. Comfort and care to trust you as she trusts an imperfect person. And for the husband who's been hurt or hasn't led well, Lord, comfort and care so that he might have courage to be tender, to be patient, to be compassionate. And in all these things, Jesus, would you be glorified? That's the point, God. We want you to be glorified, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, that we do it in your name, in a way that represents you well. God, I pray that you would make me a husband who represents you well. Would you forgive me for the ways I've mis misrepresented you? Would, you? would you give me the conviction to do what is right, to love well even when I don't feel like it? Would help us to walk this out to be a countercultural people where our marriages testify to the power of God. I pray that you would give the people in this room a vision for how great a testimony their marriage could be. They may not be Billy Graham, but, but you could do something in their marriage that, say, that, that tells the world there is a God and he's alive. Make us that kind of people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, family.